0: As the kids take off to children's worship, I'd ask that you would take God's word into your hand as we begin our summer series. It may not feel like summer out there, but according to Tim's preaching schedule this year, summer begins today. And uh, we begin uh, our summer series by looking through the great book in the Old Testament called Ruth. If you don't know where the book of Ruth is at, as you're turning your Bible, you start with Genesis, you go to Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and the book of Ruth, the eighth book of the Bible. And we are going to open that. And I want you to know that the book of Ruth is not just some literary work of literature, but it is, a, uh, it is the inspired Word of God. And just like with all Scripture, the book of Ruth is to be cherished, it is to be elevated, and it is to be put to a place as a source of worship. It should be the desire of every heart here, not only at Village Bible Church, but in all the world, those who call upon the name of the Lord to embrace this book of truth and to begin to readily apply it to their lives. The book of Ruth has been called the greatest piece of literature ever written. Another writer said before the story of Cinderella, there was the story of Ruth. If you don't know and if you've never read the book of Ruth, it is four chapters long, about a hundred verses. And I would ask that over the next four months that you would take time And at least once, read through the book of Ruth. It's very easy to read. It's not difficult or cumbersome. And it tells a story of a woman, a pagan girl named Ruth, who comes to be a part of the covenant people of Israel. And all throughout the story, you are going to see Ruth being pursued by the grace of God. Brought out of her wretched condition and her wretched place of being a godless woman to being a woman Of love for God. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of love. It's a story of grace. And a story of hope. And it's one that I hope that this church will become very familiar with this summer. So we're going to look to this book. If you haven't already, turn to Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first six verses of this great book. And this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when she heard, this is speaking of Naomi, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people, For providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. That's going to be our text this morning. I would ask that you would go into a uh, posture of prayer for a moment. Father God, as we have opened your word, the living and active word of God, Father, I pray that it will change our lives. Lord, we are going to see uh, what our legacy may be like. And how we should strive to make sure that whatever we do in the present, that the legacy that is left for future generations will bring glory and honor to you. So I pray that the book of Ruth would become alive this morning and that we would draw close to you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week, my wife and I and Noah and Joshua headed out to Washington, D.C. for four days. I uh, had a chance to go visit my youth pastor, John Avery, and uh, we went out. And I love going to Washington, D.C. As a history fan, I love to go see all the historical places. And the highlight this year was to go to Mount Vernon. If you don't know what Mount Vernon is, Mount Vernon is the home of George Washington, of course, our first president. And I will tell you, I had seen pictures of the place, but I could have never imagined the beauty that that plantation has. Just south of Washington, D.C., about a half an hour, or if you drive with him, about three and a half hours, because I got lost looking for the place. We see 2,000 acres of rolling hills on the banks of the beautiful Potomac River. His mansion was a home, 20-some rooms of prestige and splendor. And I can tell you, you learn a lot about an individual when you walk through their home. And after we had done that, after we had visited all the different buildings on that plantation, we were told to head south about a quarter of a mile, and that's where we would find the tomb of our first president. In a small little burial plot that contains George Washington's children, as well as his wife Martha, we were able to go and look to the tomb, the vault of George Washington. I had Noah with me at the time, and we walked up. Uh, Noah was asking, what is this place? And I told him what it was. And Noah is beginning to understand what death is and, and begins to understand that we do live. But there is a season where death becomes a reality. And Noah wanted to know what was all about that box, that white marble box. What is that? And then he says, what's the writing on it? There's writing on it, Daddy. What is it? So I read it to him. And this is what it says on his tomb looking into the portals of eternity, teaches that the brotherhood of man is inspired by God's Word. Because of that, then, all prejudice of race must vanish away. And then as we looked outside the tomb, we saw one other phrase. I don't know uh, who had put it on there, but I like it a lot. It said, George Washington the only known leader, to willfully give up his power to the people. If you remember history, George Washington was asked to, in fact, become the first king of the United States of America. He was unanimously voted upon to be the one who would lead this nation, but he said it is not that we need a king, but we must be represented by the people. And the world leaders were amazed that here a leader would step down And give his power to someone else. A tombstone. A tombstone that speaks volumes of a great man in history. And it took a trip to a home of a dead president for me to ask the question, what would I want on my epitaph? What would I want on my tombstone? I began to think, what would people say about me? If someone was to write a tombstone for Tim Vidal, what would it say? What would they etch? into stone about my life. As I thought about that, I began to think that tombstones are all over the place, of course. When we die, we're given a tombstone and many people have used it to speak of great depths as George Washington's tombstone does. Others have used it to be witty. And I want to share a couple of different ones with you. One is from Bath Abbey, England. And it says, Here lies an man. She lived to be an old maid, and she died an old man. You didn't get that. an man. Maybe it wasn't that funny. Moving on. In Tombstone, Arizona, a tombstone is found that says, Here lies Lester Moore. Four slugs from a 44, and no less, no more. <laughs> wow. Well. In Hatfield, Massachusetts, it says, Beneath this stone, a lovely lies Arabella Young, who on the 21st of May began to hold her tongue. All right, now you're warming up. Mary Salver gave me one that I really like. She says that she has seen a tombstone or read about a tombstone that read the following, I told you I was sick. Celebrities have used their tombstones as well. William Shakespeare has this on his tombstone. Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be the man who moves my bones. Benito Moussa, who was maybe a little too into himself, wrote this for his tombstone. Here lies one of the most intelligent animals who ever appeared on the face of the earth. No blank. The uh, great cartoonist, the one that has a thousand voices like Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam and many others, has three words on his tombstone. And he says, that's all, folks. Some people use their tombstones as as a list of accomplishments. Accomplishments. This is true of Thomas Jefferson at Monticello. It writes this, Here is Barry Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, the writer of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. It's amazing, as he listed his accomplishments, one was left off that he was the third president of the United States. Frank Sinatra has this on his tombstone, The best is yet to come. John Gray, an English citizen, wrote this. Poor John Gray, here he lies. No one laughs and no one cries. Where he's gone and how he fares, no one knows and no one cares. And the one that I like the most from an unknown Civil War tomb, it reads this. If you are able to read this, then you are standing on my head. Tombstones. They tell a lot about a man. They tell us a lot about a woman. Sometimes they tell us absolutely nothing. But they're of great importance. If the Apostle Paul was to have a tomb, if he was to have an epitaph, I believe it would be Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I began to wonder what would my tombstone be? You see, the first six verses of this book of Ruth center on a lot of calamity that takes place in a family's life. Three men in ten years die. And what we need to begin to ask ourselves this morning is what will people say when we're gone? When we are gone, when we die, the question will be, did we follow Christ? Would people write that they were a follower of Christ? Would they write that they were obedient to their Savior, would they say that in their life and in your death you glorified God? Well, how do we get there? How do we get to having that written on our tomb? It involves four quick things. The first one is your tombstone will speak, and I think the answers are already there, so you can just follow along. How to live amidst dreadful circumstances, how you live amidst dreadful circumstances. Let's start in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled. Let's stop there and let's understand what's going on. Seven words allow us a picture of what's happening in that day. It says, In the days when the judges ruled. First, we need to understand what it does not say. It does not tell us who wrote this book. We don't know whether it was Ruth herself. We don't know who it might have been. Now, we have people that speculate on who it might be. Some say that it is Samuel, the prophet that lived during that time, who is the one that penned the words of Ruth. However, others in another camp say it was King David. And the reason why they say that is if you were to look at Ruth chapter 4, in the last verse of this book, you would see that King David's name is written in the genealogy, which tells us something, that the book of Ruth was written after King David had gotten the throne of Israel. So we know that that's approximately where it was written. But we're not sure. We don't know who wrote this book. But we do know that it is supposed to be in the canon of Scripture. There's never been a question that this book should be within the Bible that we hold. Now, From this first phrase, we can ascertain that the story of Ruth happens during the 350 years that the Judges ruled Israel. Now, for you that don't understand Israel's history or a timeline, the time of Judges comes right after the death of Joshua. If you need a little more help in who Joshua is, if you remember, all of us must remember Moses. Moses dies, and the leadership moves over to Joshua. And then after Joshua leads the nation for a generation, he dies. And God, under his divine plan, says, I'm not going to raise up another leader, but I'm going to raise up a group of leaders called judges. Now, some of them, you know, we all know the story of Samson. Samson was a judge. He ruled as a judge over Israel. Some other lesser known ones, of course, are Gideon. And even women were judges because we see Deborah as a judge of God. During this time, the prophet Samuel, of course, has a huge amount of authority as the prophet of the Lord. In fact, he is the one that anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. This time of judges, if you need to understand, uh, came approximately 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. Now that we know where this book stands within history, we need to understand what was going on during that day. It says, when the judges ruled. During that time that the judges ruled, it was a time of great darkness for the nation of Israel. The Bible says that in the days that the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That gives us the next phrase. There was a famine in the land. There are two types of famine that were happening. First of all, there was a moral famine. It seems that there was uh, used in the book of Ruth a compare and contrast from the book of Judges. Of course, Ruth comes right on the heels of Judges, and we see a compare and contrast going on. In the book of Judges, we see a moral famine, where there's spiritual darkness, where there's immorality, where there's pursuing idols, where there's disloyalty, where there's lust, where there's war, where there's cruelty, where there's disobedience that brings sorrow, where there is a time that is like a desert of rebellion and a faithlessness of a chosen people. But in Ruth, we see spiritual light, purity, deciding to follow one God, a life of devotion, a life of love, a life of peace, kindness, obedience that brings blessing. Ruth is an oasis of righteousness and a faithfulness of an alien individual, a Gentile. And as a result of this moral failure that's going on in the book of Judges, we see that there was a material famine The text tells us that there is a famine, and what it means in the Hebrew literally is that food is sparse. There isn't food. Now, many scholars, in fact, almost all believe that this famine came on as a result of the sin of the people in Israel. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the people of Israel that they would be blessed in obedience But they would be cursed because of their disobedience. And he says throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you you follow me, you will be blessed. You choose to follow other gods and go after other things, then I will send raiders from foreign lands and they will come and my hand will be against you. Now, most scholars believe that because of the sin that is seen in the book of Judges, they were being cut off by their God. And it seems that this famine came by an invading raid or an invading force that decimated the crops and took all of the livestock. You say, how do you know that? Because we know that 50 miles from Bethlehem where the famine's going on is the city of Moab, which we'll talk about later. And it tells us that in Moab there's food. In Moab there's all the things that they need. But 50 miles back in Bethlehem there's a famine. It doesn't seem like a weather famine, but more of a military famine. Why is this that it takes place? There are three things that bring forth this famine. First of all, apathy. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. If you're in the book of Ruth, go one book back. Go to the book of Judges. We need to understand what's going on as the book of Ruth opens up because it is happening during this time. Judges chapter 2. We're going to sit here for a couple moments. Judges chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 10. And we are going to learn about the apathy Of the people of God. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, meaning after the generation that had entered into the promised land, after they died, another generation grew up who neither uh, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Stop there for a moment. This is a picture of apathy. Here is a new generation that rises up, and they don't care about God. And they don't care about what God did in the future. In fact, they don't even remember. It's off of their head. And this is not 400 years ago. This is one generation. So it would be like me not thinking and remembering greatness and the horrific nature of World War II and saying, you know, I don't know what happened there. You know, it's not really not that important. The year 2007 is of greater value to me than to know of history. One generation. And they find themselves beginning to grow distant from God's stories of his faithfulness and his miraculous power that he showed to his people. But it doesn't end there. The apathy moves to apostasy. Look at verse 11 through 19. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, that's not talking of Tom and Despy. That's speaking of a group of people. It says they forsook the Lord the god of their fathers who had brought them out of egypt they followed and worshiped the various gods of the peoples around them they provoked the lord to anger because they forsook him and served baal and the asherah in his anger against israel the lord handed over to raiders handed them over to raiders who plundered them he sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. So they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. This passage tells us that apathy leads to heinous sin. They went from not caring about God to forsaking God. They went to not remembering God to choosing other gods to be their gods. They worshipped others. And as a, t- as a result of that, this time of the judges is a time of great distress. So what does God do? Out of God's grace and out of His mercy and out of His compassion, He raises up men and women for a certain job to defeat the raiders. Remember the story of Samson? Samson is raised up to do what? To defend Israel and to conquer the Philistine army. Remember that? Why? Because the Philistines had come in because of the disobedience of Israel. And God says, all right, I've heard them bellyache and moan, and I'm going to send Samson to show my grace and my mercy. But we see that it leads to one other thing, and that is to anarchy. Apostasy that begins with apathy will end in anarchy. Listen to what it says in verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges. God's grace and mercy say, we don't want it. We don't want to listen to who you put in charge of us but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed And afflicted them. But listen to what it says in verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them. The picture is is that they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And as a judge would come, they said, we don't want to listen to you, judge. We don't care if God has sent you. And what would happen is, is when that judge would die, Samson, Deborah, and Gideon, when they would die, and there's numerous judges throughout the book, it says that not only did they return to their own ways, but they went even farther in their corrupt sin. This is a bad time for Israel. And yet, it's a time of defeat. And as a result of that, God shows His mercy and grace at numerous times, and they don't Listen. In fact, one of the most famous lines in the book of Judges, which is repeated four times in the book, is that man, every man did what was right in his own eyes. How do we apply that to our lives this morning? The desperate circumstances that we live in. I will tell you that it is my opinion that there is a lot of the judges' life that we are living today we could take america we could take even our church and find ourselves at times living like the people of israel did in the book of judges why because we live in a time of apathy even within our own church and please hear me even within the walls of this room we have people who are apathetic to the moving of god in their lives they are more concerned people in this place there are some that are more concerned about What they're going to do on the weekend, or what they're going to do on the golf course, or what they're going to do with their money, or what they're going to do with their kids and their purposes and their desires, than they are to think about God. They're apathetic to God. And as a result, we see a whole generation turning away from God and His goodness. So what happens? We bring around us preachers and teachers who will itch, uh, who will scratch our itching ears to hear what we want to hear. So what do we hear? When we enter into churches, we hear about what God will do for you. You follow God and this is what He will do. It's a great exchange. God is going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. And so as a result, we find ourselves apathetic. We ask our questions, how will God make my life better? As if He is some spiritual pill that we take. But just like that, In the Judges, we see that the church has moved from apathy to apostasy. Every week, please hear me, every week more people walk out of the doors of the church in America than they enter in in four weeks. Meaning more people leave today that will come into the church in the next four weeks. What does that tell us? That tells us that within another couple generations... If the trend continues, and if revival does not come to the American church, American church as we know it will be dead. Now, what people say is, "Oh, well, there's megachurches, there's all these Christian televisions, and all the multi-million-dollar things. We've got focus on the family, we've got Moody Radio. The church isn't going that bad." Well, I will tell you that it is, and the reason why is because of the apathy. Of God's people. Divorce and infidelity amongst evangelicals is the same as the rest of the world. We see and hear more and more about defeat to sin than we do about victory with godly people. And yet, if you were to ask the people of the church today where the church is at, people would say, We're doing just fine. Why? Because we're apathetic. And you know what will happen? We'll go from apathy to apostasy, and as a result of that, our world will become a place of anarchy. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Because just like in the book of Judges today, even in the hearts of some of you here this morning, you say, Tim, don't tell me how to live my life. I will live it how I want to live it. I don't want to read the Bible and and be told what to do and what not to do. You know, in this generation uh, that we live in that is... Fallen for the postmodern way of thinking that has taught us that there is no authority but our own feeling and our own belief. What we say is, hey, this may be right for you, but this is right for me. This may work for you, but I'm going to go this way. And as much as yours may be truth, mine is truth as well. And what begins to happen is, just like the book of Judges, We say, that may work for you. That's fine. Do that which is right in your own eyes. And I will do right of what is right in my own eyes. So what do we begin to have happen? We have a life that is full of situational ethics. That says, you know what? I'll do this if I have to to accomplish the task at hand, even if it means that I have to break God's word as a result. Which begs the question, how are we to live amidst dreadful circumstances. How are we to live for Christ in a time that is so anti-God and so anti-Bible? How are we to live G-rated lives in an X-rated world? How are we to live so that the world may see that we live for Christ? Or are we just the kind of people who are just another person in the office or just another kid in the school or just another family in the neighborhood? The book of Ruth tells us a story of one individual's faithfulness amidst a nation's sinfulness. Sounds like the Christian in America. We are called to be faithful followers of Christ in a world that chooses to throw Jesus and God out of its nation. It's my prayer that the people of Village Bible Church, that the women of this church would be present-day Ruths who stand and are faithful to God. And men, we're going to have someone to follow later on because we're going to meet a guy named Boaz, a great man of faith, a great man of renown who follows Jesus Christ. So I pray that this church would have women that are like Ruth and men that are like Boaz who remain upright in times of great trouble. Secondly, we see this morning that the decisions we make, our tombstones will speak of the decisions you make at the crossroads of life. Your tombstone will speak of the decisions you make at the crossroads of life. The text tells us in verse 1 that during this time there was a man who lived in Bethlehem. Now it says that the famine was going on in Bethlehem. How ironic. Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet what is seen is a famine. Most of you know that I am a caterer. And as a result of being a caterer, there may be many things that the Bidal family runs out of. We may run out of clothing. We may run out of being able to have money to pay for the electric bill. We may even lose our home and our cars. But I will tell you one thing that the Bidal family will always have, and that is food. My family's been a family of caterers, and if you were to look at my physique, you would know that there's never been a shortage of food at the Bedal house. How ironic is it, though, that a place called House of Bread would have a famine in it. It tells us one of the many ironies of this story. And it tells us that this man leaves the House of Bread to go to a place called Moab. Moab's about 50 miles from Bethlehem. And look at what it says in verse 2. It tells us who this man is. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kileon. They were Epaphorites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. Let's stop there for a moment. Here, Elimelech. Our buddy, Elimelech. He ain't in the story very long, so let's give him some props. He has a time. He lives in a time of great distress for the nation of Israel. What is he to do? There's a famine in the land. There's no food. There's no resources. There's no job. There's a depression in the land. What is he to do? Was he to remain in a place of famine and allow his family to run the risk of dying? Or was he go to go to a place where he would find resources? I will tell you, the commentators are split on what to make of a decision. But it tells us very clearly, first of all, that Elimelech left a promised land. Elimelech left a promised land. Understand, Bethlehem is uh, is, uh, squarely within the land of Canaan that was given to Joshua and the children of Israel. So they say that he leaves the promised land. Now, some commentaries say that Elimelech should be commended for his decision of leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab. They say he should be commended for protecting his family and providing for his family. Paul tells Timothy that it is of great importance that we as men would provide for our families. And if we don't provide for our families, we are nothing but dirt. We need to provide. So that's what Elimelech does. He says, you know what? I'm going to provide for my family. There's no food in Bethlehem. I'm heading to Moab. And then a good man would go and find what his family needs. But there are others, and I fall in this camp, who are more disappointed with this decision. Because we see that he leaves the promised land and that he lives, or he lived and he lingered in a polluted land. He lived and he lingered in a polluted land. Now, we need to understand it says that he goes to a place called Moab. Moab is the home of the Moabites. Now, where did they come from, these Moabites? If you were to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19, you would find a passage of Scripture that many parents don't want their children to read. There's many of those passages in the Bible where we, you don't... I always wonder how the children's illustrated Bible would illustrate that part of the Bible. They just don't. And what we read in Genesis 19 is that Lot gets into some real trouble because his daughters get Lot drunk. And on two consecutive nights, the two daughters of Lot get their father drunk and then they sleep with him. On the first night, the oldest daughter sleeps with her father. And as a result of that relationship, a son is born. And Genesis 19 tells us that his name was Moab, the father of the Moabites. And then we know that the younger daughter the next night sleeps with her father. And out of that comes the tribe of Ben-Amin. And as a result of that, another child is born. So just like the situation that brings forth this child, Moab, they follow the footsteps of their forefather. The Moabites are known and were known for a people that were sexually perverse in every way. They worshipped a god named Chemosh. Now, Chemosh is well known for many scholars in the Bible because Chemosh was such a sexually perverted god and, and ordered such a religion that there was all kinds of promiscuity and fornication going on in the land of Moab. And as a result of that, while he elevated sexual relations amongst adults, he did not like children. Jewish tradition says that Chemosh began a ritual known as child sacrifice. As a baby was born, they were thrown onto a fire and burned to death. Why? Because Chemosh did not like children sounds like America today. So what happens? It says that Elimelech goes and he lives there for a temporary time. Now, it's in my opinion that Elimelech makes a very bad decision. We don't know, but based on what I've read and what I believe, I think Elimelech screwed up. Now, why? Because he wanted to provide for his family? No, that it commended. Well done, Father. Go find food for your family. That's what we should do as men, is to make sure we are providing for our family. That is our responsibility. But I will tell you this. It is better to suffer with God's people in a time of famine than it is to live in prosperity with a godless people. Don't ever forget that. It is better that you, as Christians go and suffer with God's people than it is to find all the prosperity in the world with the pagans. Now it tells us that Elimelech was only going to stay there for a short time. In verse 1, the Hebrew word there is ger. Ger, meaning to dwell as an alien, a stranger or a foreigner. This Hebrew word literally means to uh, be in a place with a focus of only a temporary lodging. This would be very similar to what we did in Washington, D.C., We were there for a temporary time. But in verse 2, it says that he lived there. It's a different word. It's the word hayah, which means to exist, to become, or to come to pass. So what happens? They're existing now in Moab. What was supposed to be just a sojourn, a temporary visit, turns into a settled existence. This seems like the departure, not only from the famine, But it seems that Elimelech leaves all that he has, including the community of God's people. I want to make something very clear. We live in a world that changes jobs like we change our clothes. And for those that are in the corporate world that find themselves being moved back and forth, I want you to ask the question, the next time you are asked to move and that there is a promotion, make sure that where you are going, wherever it may be, that you don't just think that there's greener grass with that job, but you make sure there is a church. One of the first things, don't go looking for a house. You go find the house of God where the Word of God is being taught, where your children will be fed, where your family will be able to fellowship with the people of God. Elimelech went into a godly world. We're in a godly world. But he went, and he went to be by himself, the only, as we know of, the only Israelite to live in the land of Moab. And he was out of the community of God's people. So what does he do? He finds himself that he's in trouble. And this is so amazing. He runs to go find resources. Now, it's amazing the name Elimelech, if you want to understand names and what they mean. Some of you are excited about those types of things. Elimelech means my God is my king. Now, think about that. If he lived up to his name, then he would have believed in the sovereignty of God and and the providence of God and that God has said that he would minister to his people. But he doesn't do that. He goes. Now, some can contend that that was the wise thing to do. So what do we do with this? Was he wise? Was he unwise? We don't know. All we know is that when we have to make a decision at the crossroad of life, Make sure that you never do it without God walking ahead of you. Make a decision that's based in prayer. Make sure you seek out godly counsel and say, why am I moving? Why am I buying this home? Why am I pursuing this or that? Make sure that you ask those questions and say, what does God think of it? Not just what my wife thinks about it or what my children or what the boss thinks about it. What does God think about it? When you come to a crossroads, the first thing you should do is to go to God and spend a season in prayer. What does He do? We see, he takes off and he runs uh, over to Moab. And I will tell you that there is a huge lesson that can be learned. Men of Village Bible Church, let me speak to you for a moment. We need to understand, we're going to learn that this decision cost Elimelech more than he would have ever known. I want to tell you men of a church, understand the decisions you make. The decisions that you make about who you hang out with, about what job you take, about how you spend your money, about how you parent your children, about who you hang out with, or what you do in your free time. Understand that those decisions are not just for the here and now, but they have weight to them in the future. Know that our decisions as adults weigh heavy on the future that we live in. Understand that. Don't just be so cavalier and so masculine and say, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there and do as I will. I will tell you, that kind of thought will lead you to utter disaster. All the decisions we make must be bathed in prayer. So we see them go to Moab. And it's a decision that I think if Elimelech was to be here today, probably say wasn't well, the best decision. I'd rather not have gone there. And I will tell you, we need to be very careful. One other thing we see in this decision to go to Moab is this. It says Elimelech went there for a temporary season. He had a decision. He makes a decision and says, I'm going to go to Moab. But I know that Moab, and I'm speculating with you for a moment, I know that Moab is a sinful place. I know that they're full of idol worship and that. But I'm only going to go there for a little while and it's because God's people are in distress. I will tell you, many people leave church. I was reading a statistic by the Barna Group that spoke about one of the key reasons that people leave the church is because of dysfunction within the church. And what I've learned is that what many times happens is when people leave a church, it is very difficult to go and find another church. And so what they do is say, well, I don't want to attend this church anymore. The pastor's a jerk. The elders, they don't listen to me. And and I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to find another church. And we have a whole bunch of people just jumping from one church to another, to another, and to another. Now, there is a season, and there is a time when you can make a decision to leave a church. You, you by all means, are on a voluntary basis here at Village Bible Church. We can't hold you here. We'd like to, at least some of you. I'm just kidding. We can't hold you here. You're not under any other compulsion, but your own free will, even as a Calvinist, I can say under your own free will, to choose to worship here. And there is a time, I will tell you, there is a time when you need to leave a certain church. And I can't tell you when it is, but you'll know it when you see it. But be very careful that you don't just leave one imperfect church to go to another imperfect church. Make sure that you pray through and you consider what that decision means for you. Many people, I've been grieved, many people have left this church just like every other church. I'm not grieved that people leave a church. The church is not just here at Village, but it's all throughout the world. Anywhere where two or three are gathered, there is the church of Jesus Christ, where they break bread and they baptize and they reach out. But what I'm grieved about is that there are many who have left here. As I run into them in the grocery stores, as I run into them at different places, I say, hey, how have you been? Where are you going to church? You know, we just haven't found a place yet. We haven't really, you know, it's just kind of still looking. Let me tell you something. Going to church is not the issue. Making sure you plant your rear end in a church building. Church is all about community. And if you're going to leave this church, God bless you, and we want to help you do one thing. If you say that village is not where you need to be and God's leading you somewhere else, the elders want to know that. And we're not going to sit there and say, you dummies, where are you going? we got the best thing going on here. We want to help you find a church that you can find community in and that you can find yourself growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Make sure you don't just walk out of here. There is so much back and forth from people. And they say, well, I haven't found the right church. Find it. Find a church that teaches and preaches the Word of God. Maybe some things you might not like. That's okay. Sit your rear in there and get involved in a body of Christ. That's what a trouble was. But look at what happens. It's temporary. And what does his children do? Understand this, so very important for us as adults. Whatever decisions you make, and whatever who you're hanging out with, or what you do with your money, or or where you live, or whatever it may be, understand that whatever decisions you make, there's a good chance your children will take those decisions and go one step farther. Elimelech goes there for a short season. What happens to his children? They marry women from Moab. This is just a short journey. And what do his children do? Malon and Kilion, they're hanging out there for a while. They say, there's no Israelites here, so what should we do? Hey, look at Ruth and look at Orpah. Hey, they could be our wives. And they take them to be their wives. I will tell you, that was forbidden by God to do. In fact, a person from Moab would have to spend ten years outside of worshiping God with the people of God in Israel To, an essence, kind of cleanse them of all the godless nature of who they were. As a participant, they, they would just stand and observe the people of God, the Israelites, before they could enter into worship. So this is the equivalent. Malon and Kilion our friends here. They marry women, the equivalent of today, of your young man, your son, marrying an unbeliever who has nothing to want to do with God. Would you want your child, your son or your daughter, to marry someone who can't be a part of Christian worship or chooses not to? And yet, Elimelech allows his boys to marry two Moabite women. Does God use it for the good? In one case, He does. In the other case, it it just kind of ends. So what happens? Understand this. Your legacy, not only as people but as a church, is based on what we deal at the crossroads of life. What decisions we are making. That's what the legacy will tell about. Well, there's a third thing we see, and that is your response. Your tombstone will speak of your response to devastating calamities. In verse four, we learn that things don't go well in Moab. Now, they're there, the Bible says, for a period of over 10 years, and things begin to go bad. But even before they head out to Moab, it seems that Elimelech and Naomi deal with some difficult calamities. Now the first one they, excuse me, deal with is the calamity of disease. Write that down. The calamity of disease. Now you'd say, "Where is disease?" In that verse, in verse two, we find it in the names of their two children. It says, "The man's name was Elimelech. My God is my king." His wife's name was Naomi, which literally means "sweetheart." She was a lovely girl. Naomi was one of those people. You know, she would remind me kind of like a Jenny Wagner, if you will. If you know Jenny Wagner, always smiling, always excited, always have. I've never seen Jenny get mad. I ask Derek all the time, does she ever get mad? And he says, she tries, but it just doesn't work out. Okay? I'm telling you, sweetheart, she must have just been a lovely lady. She's great. And then we get to the two boys, the Klingon boys, as I call them from Star Trek, Malon and Kilion. Well, the boys are born. we got to name them. Malon means sickly. Oh, look at the, you. You have given birth to a son. Look at him. He's sickly. Oh, Kilion is born. Kilion in the Hebrew means dying. Does the word of wisdom, and this is free of charge, it's probably not a good thing to name your sons Malon and Kilion. I don't know of anybody that's named in that, probably because people have enough Hebrew knowledge to know that sickly and dying are not too good names for a child. So this is what they name them. Probably because the children, when they were born, struggled with some sort of ailment or some sort of condition. Maybe they were handicapped. Maybe there was some uh, uh, mental uh, handicap that was along with it. And and what do we learn from that? Quite frankly, we learn something of great importance. And that is, is our legacy, our tombstone, will speak not of how we deal with the good times, but the bad times. As Christians, we will enter into seasons. And for some, even in our place, they enter into lives. Where disease defines who they are. And I will tell you something. As Christians, you want to live a legacy that is upright before God? Live a life in the times of sickness, in the times of cancer, in the times of handicaps, or paralysis, in the times of disease, in those seasons. Make sure that those sicknesses don't define you, but your love for God does. I will tell you, it's very easy for me to say that in a season where my family is doing well. But the question is, is my children will see how I live for God, not when I'm out playing baseball with them, but when the word cancer or the word illness or the word he's not going to make it for very long. How will they see their father live? Now we don't know if this is a curse by God. And, and we're not sure of why this happens, we know that illnesses aren't a curse from God other than a consequence of sin because of Adam's sin in the garden and our subsequent sin as mankind. God gave us perfect bodies in the beginning, but because of our sin, we were told that we would just begin to um, disintegrate, if you will, into nothing and go from ashes to ashes. We're so excited to hear a woman This week, a Christian who was a family member struggling with a constant ailment, with no prospect for a cure. And I was watching her as she was speaking. And I did not see her or hear her blame God. Nor did I see her asking questions and saying, why God? But what she did is, I know God's got it in control. I know God will figure it out all for me. I am just going to live the life that He's given me. I love people like that who say, you know what, my life is hard, my life is difficult, and this disease drives us nuts, but we will not let that persuade us or to move us from worshiping God. That is what we are to be. In times of sickness, we as Christians must be models of faithfulness as people watch us struggle in those times of trial. Understand this, don't let your ailments alienate you from God. Let them allow you to consider all that God does give you. Maybe God has allowed cancer to happen. Don't define God in the cancer. Define God in all the good that he allows in your life and the blessings that he shows. Next, we see that our legacy is forged by our response to death. Look at verse 3. It tells us that Elimelech dies. We don't know how. We don't know why. Is it God's judgment? I'm not sure. But even worse, the Klingon brothers die as well. They go to Moab. Now, I think this is kind of ironic. They go, and this family leaves Bethlehem for what? So they wouldn't die. They go to Moab, and what happens? They die. I don't know if you find that humorous. I kind of do.
1: We're going to get out of here. Let's go. We don't
0: want to die here in Bethlehem. So where are we going? We're going to Moab. They go there. They're there ten years, and three of them die. Irony. They're running away from death and they find it at their front door. Just like the mail, it will find you. And the question is, in that time of death, when it comes to your front door, does your faith have enough ballast in the bottom of that boat to weather those storms? Those are questions you need to ask yourself as a Christian. I ask myself all the time, in times of temptation, are there enough, is there enough ballast in my boat to turn away from sin? In my times of trial, is there enough in my bottom of my boat to weather those storms that I don't capsize or tip over? Have you asked that question? I hope that we as a people will be able to look at death right in the eyes and say, even though Lord gives and takes away, I will bless the name of Jesus Christ. In 1994, the Willis family was in a minivan heading on the tri-state north of Chicago. And many of you know the story of what happened. They're following a semi-truck, and a piece of iron from the semi-truck comes off. Even though for ten miles the semi-driver was told that something was wrong in the back of his rig, he continued to drive. This was not an accident. This could have been stopped. And they're driving. And a piece as the family is sleeping, nine children, two parents, a mom and a dad, are driving. And what happens? That piece of metal iron falls off it, and it strikes the Willis van. And it hits the gas tank and engulfs the van in flames. Six of the Willis children died in that accident. Think about that for a moment. Your family is decimated by death. Being interviewed by all the Chicago news outlets, the first thing that Mr. Willis says is, though my children are gone, I bless the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we have the faith like that, man? In fact, I was just watching on 2020 a couple Uh, It was about a week ago, and they had a story about them. The Willis family has come out with a book about forgiveness. Of course, you know that that story was the one that got uh, Governor George Ryan in all kinds of trouble. And there was a major trial that was going on, and the Willis family was brought before it. And the mother said, even though I lost my six children and she named them, she says, I will not grow bitter against my God. I don't know what will happen today as you leave this place. But understand and know that there is a chance because we do not know what a day might bring that we may lose our family and you, like Naomi, will be all by yourself. And the question is, will you respond to death in a way that glorifies God? Next we see that it's also an element of defeat. Disease and death led to defeat. It says both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Really quickly, the words left out. This phrase is pregnant with meaning. Left out. Left without. The idea here is that Naomi thought she is in a line of being uh, knocked down and knocked out of this thing called life. And she's the next one. This phrase gives a picture of all hopelessness. Her husband's gone. That's bad. For a woman in that time to lose her husband, that is not a good thing. Other than just the grief of dealing with it, she had to live that life without her husband. It gets even worse. Her two sons die. It was bad enough her husband dies. At least she's got two boys that can take care of her. My mom, if my dad was to go, I pray that that doesn't happen anytime soon. But if it was to, my brother Joel and I would do our best and work as hard as we can to take care of our mother. Now think about this, that my mom was to lose my dad and her two boys. And on top of that, she lives somewhere else other than America. Where a woman, an older woman, who loses her family like that, would become a vagabond. And on top of that, she doesn't have to just worry about herself, but she's got two young daughter-in-laws that she has to help take care of and allow also to grieve. Three deaths, ten years. Ten years. I can't imagine what I might do, but I pray that in that day, I would not feel defeated. But in that death, that there would be the greatest victory because of God's goodness to us. One final thing, and we're going to close this out. And that is that your tombstone will speak of the results of your difficult choices. After the death of her family in verse six, or in verse five, four and five, it tells us in verse six that Naomi's response is the following: "When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. She says, "You know what, I've had enough with Moab. I'm done. I'm going back to Bethlehem. It sounds like God's doing some things there. And she sets out to return. To Bethlehem. That must have been a difficult decision. She had been gone for a while. This is a woman traveling by herself, fifty miles. It's, it's a journey. And she takes a choice. She makes a choice. She takes a step that would set the stage for the rest of the book of Ruth. But what does it teach us? Three very quick things. First of all, when you have to make a difficult choice, remember the crossroads of life. Here's the application. First of all, in that decision, draw near to God. Involving, it involves drawing near to God. Listen to the words of James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, this should be our Decision words every time. If this is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Draw near to God. You know, in verse 6, it is the first mention of God's name. We've got death. We've got disease. We've got defeat. And then all of a sudden, Naomi hears, Oh, God's taking care of His people in Bethlehem. Invite God into your decisions. Number two, Understand what God is doing. Look at what it says. It says that it was being, you know, their needs were being met in a specific way. God was meeting their needs. The famine was over. This is huge. Understand this, people of God, that many times we don't understand what God is doing and God's faithfulness in our lives. Why? Because we're so busy thinking, well, I'm accomplishing all this. I'm taking care of 75 or 80% of it, and God, you're coming through for the last 20%. Praise be to God. Understand this. You have nothing apart from God you and I can do nothing so we need to understand that any good and perfect gift doesn't come from our own hands but it comes from above. The money you have in your pocket, it comes from God. The job that you have, it comes from God. The children that you have, they come from God. Your ability to buy a home, your ability to live life, to enjoy life, it all comes from God. And so when you see those things, don't say, well, I'm just glad I have a job that takes care of our needs. No, thank God that He has given you that job and thank God that he has taken care of your needs. Understand specifically how God is meeting your needs and finally and finally we see take inventory of past decisions when you have a difficult choice to make my father taught me something very important and that is history is our greatest teacher second only to the word of God history teaches us so much why because history has a way if we don't listen it has a funny way of repeating itself When you make a decision, look to the past and say, well, what happened when my friend made that decision? What happened when my parents made that decision? What happened when my church made that decision? And weigh that out. Naomi said, man, you know what? God's helping His people. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to serve God. Six verses in this book that teach us so much. They teach us about our legacy. And the question is, is, in our lives... As we live our lives, the question is, will they see? Will people in the future see us as people who had shattered dreams or who served God in heaven? If you want to live a life not full of shattered dreams, but one that is obedient, then it means allow God to lead and guide you in dreadful circumstances. It means allowing God to make you wise and allow you to make wise decisions at the crossroads of life. It means strengthening you in the calamities of life. And it means allowing God to help you with the difficult choices that you have to make. Invite Him to do that. It's then and only then that the people of God will have tombstones that praise and glorify the name of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You. And Lord, as we um, close this book uh, today, Lord, six verses that teach us amazing things. Father, I pray that the legacy that we will have will be the words that we lived for Jesus. Father, I pray that the legacy of this church, we don't know what will happen to this church in in 10 days or 10 years or 100 years, but Father, I pray that those that go after us will have found us faithful. And they'll say they served the Lord. They didn't get everything right, but they served you, Lord. And Lord, our number one step to doing that is not pursuing the things of this world, but pursuing Jesus And Lord, that's what we're going to sing as we close our service. So I pray that, Lord, this song, our hearts desire is that you would give us Jesus. And let that be on our tongues, not just today, but for the rest of our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.